You're listening to the Toy Photographers Podcast, the official podcast of toyphotographers.com. My name is James Garcia, and each week I talk to photographers from around the world who are turning Lego, action figures, miniatures, custom creations, and more into amazing works of art. This week I spoke with Dennis Taylor, who has been making his own toys and doing incredible work under the name Crash Override. I talked to Crash earlier this year for Jet Manuary, but I knew that I had to have him back onto the show for a full interview. We discussed his history with the various art forms that custom toy making requires, his biggest influences, going back to school to hone his craft, and so much more. I do want to warn you that there are a couple of rough spots in the audio. I had a bit of internet trouble when recording, and it's not too bad, but I did just want to give you a heads up. Any audio issues aside though, this was a great chat, so let's just jump right into it. Dennis, welcome back to the show. I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, it was funny going through your your Instagram feed to come up with questions, and you you deal with so many different things: uh, photography, art, painting, custom toys. I really wasn't sure where to start, so I guess we could just start back at the beginning. How did you start doing all this kind of stuff, and and where did it all start for you? Man, yeah, as you said, like there's a lot of stuff that goes into that, from drawing to design to painting to minifigures to figures. I think it all started probably with the drawing right out of high school. Uh, Didn't have like a huge high school. It was really like zero funding. So I didn't really get a lot of art there, but I had kind of a a draw to art. I don't know what or why that draw was there, but I took a drawing class and kind of that's where it was kind of introduced me into art and drawing. And I still suck at drawing. Like, you know, I took it when I was 18 and it's still (laughs) like this time later, but uh, drawing I think was the foundation that kind of started it at all. And then it kind of led to photography, which led to toy photography, which led to, you know, a long story. And th- it's just a really long journey. And it started with drawing and it's ending with, uh, well, not ending, but it's it's ending up to look like we're transitioning for me, at least into more of a toy making kind of a, a hobby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long have you been doing the, the toy making stuff now? It started with customizing and I can't even remember when my first custom was. It was a monkey head. I knew exactly kind of what it was and where I was at the moment, but I can't remember the years. It's well over 10 years since I've been kind of hacking on figures. So what compelled you to do that the first time? So we were, I was looking online uh, in the morning. I, I woke up like really early insomnia or whatever. And so I started just kind of Google searching different stuff. And it, I, like we all do, we kind of go into some sort of rabbit hole. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I landed on a site that was talking, it was a blog post by someone that was talking about adding articulation to a static figure. Mm. And so they were taking like the little schlike animals and kind of hacking them apart and adding the articulation that way. And I didn't take it that far. It was just kind of that, that aha moment where I was like, oh, I could take one of those figures and I could cut his head off and put it on something else. <laughs> and that's kind of where it all started. That's funny because last night I was looking, you know, through your stuff and, and I scrolled all the way down to your feed and you had this great photo of it was like a deer head on a human body with a suit on or something. It was like a dapper deer or something like that. Yeah. I thought it was just such a cool looking figure. And the and I immediately just started looking around my office for things that maybe I could do with something like that. And I have a little like uh, moose and I was like, oh, maybe uh-huh. I can chop the head off of this moose and, and slap it on something. <laughs> so it's, it's funny. That's kind of where your where your mind goes originally, I guess. Yeah, my mind has always went to kind of the animal customs. That was like the, my first one, and I I really like that anthropomorphic kind of animal mm-hmm. kind of look. And I think that that deer, that dapper deer that you were talking about, was actually a commission from someone up in Seattle, hmm. Planet Janet. 
So Cammy, if you remember, if you know her, she was at the Seattle meetup just for a day or two, I hmm. think. Yeah, she had reached out and said, hey, can you do this for me? And we uh, we worked it out. So that was a real fun one. It was it was neat. Yeah, it was a really cool figure. It was fun just to see a lot of your early creations, especially because you were one of those people who was already doing toy photography when I started. So you were one of the first people I discovered, especially once I started trying to get involved in the community and um, found Shelly's work and then just started like trying to follow everybody she was following, you know, and, and getting involved that way. So it was it was really cool to walk down memory lane a little bit and see some of the, the earlier stuff that you were working on. Yeah, it's neat to see kind of where it, where it all started and, and where it's become. Yeah. I started just making stuff in my living room, and now it's like I've got a room and like half my garage is devoted to this stuff. <laughs> uh, that's just not including the figures, just like the tools that you need that, that you amass when you're doing this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I was watching some of your YouTube videos, too, and just seeing, you know, like the workspace you have and all the different paints and, and, and tools, and you've got drills and, and all this different stuff. I'm sure it just kind of snowballs over time as you try new techniques and, and scales and that and that kind of thing. Yeah, just like any Lego or, or toy that you have, you, you get into that one and it kind of hooks you and you're like, oh, I need this piece. So you buy the set and then you just, it slowly amasses <laughs> over time. Like I need fluorescent pink for a certain custom and now i have like fluorescent pink paint and so it's just <laughs> it's great when you need it but you don't often need fluorescent pink right right unless you're making uh, unicorn porgs or something i guess that's true yeah when you're when you're army building unicorn porgs that's definitely a, a good good thing to have around yeah maybe that was my reason to do it is just to get rid of the pink <laughs> <laughs> yeah use it for something yeah Let's rewind a bit. Were you always interested in toys or how did you first start getting into this toy hobby in general? I've never really considered myself a collector. Um, you know, as a kid, G.I. Joe obviously was big for me. G.I. Joe, Star Wars, I grew up in that age. But I kind of fell out of it after the Super Nintendo era. Hmm. The Nintendo, Super Nintendo came along and it's like, okay, that's cool. These toys kind of need to take a backseat. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I never really got too sucked into Nintendo. Um, and I got into, you know, as I said, drawing and drawing kind of led to, you know, different creative outlets. And I kind of dabbled in photography for some time. And it was, uh, film photography at that time, like digital cameras weren't as good. Like there's some point and shoot digitals, but it was still kind of not really the, the consumer grade market of what we see now with all these SLRs around. But I started taking, you know, film photography and that led to downloading Instagram hmm. and, uh, I've had, it, it was kind of a weird how I got my first initial collection of toys was I was working at a warehouse and in the back of the warehouse, we had this shelf and one thing led to another, like there was a little keychain and someone came by and just set up the keychain in a really weird way. Kind of like what we do with toy photography. They set the keychain up and it was like a Winnie the Pooh and he was interacting with one of the pens or something. And I thought it was kind of neat. And I didn't know who actually set that up on the shelf. And so I went to the, uh, the swap meet the next weekend and just bought like some cheap figures and set them, just threw them on the shelf. And before I knew it, it became kind of this communal kind of, water cooler type ground where people would come by and just set up these little scenes as they go throughout the day and they'd use it as kind of just a little relief or whatever they need to do a walk around and people started bringing in their figures and so, I, so we've got this big huge box going um unfortunately the the business kind of when when everything bottomed out like people got fired and we had to lay everybody off and so that shelf kind of just took a back seat and i ended up just taking the figures home and putting them in a box and in a bin so 
those kind of came back out when I downloaded Instagram and realized, oh, there's this toy community. And I, like everybody says, they post that one picture and tag it Spider-Man. And then all of a sudden someone likes it. And you're like, what? Why did someone like this picture? I don't even know him. <laughs> and um, you go into their feed and you're like, oh my goodness, there's people that do this. And so that kind of took me back to that warehouse where it was, you're setting up these little scenes and you're interacting. It was kind of a fun little thing and it just kind of exploded from there. And so that's kind of where it all started for me. I'm not really a collector with action figures. I'm more of a, I think a photographer that got into action figures. You've worked so much with different toy brands and styles and sizes. Are there any that you're gravitated to most or, or any favorites that you've found over the years? I don't really think I have like a specific brand or, or whatever I like the best in, in terms of brand or manufacturer or anything. Like, I think it's all character driven for me. Like if I'm familiar with the character and I have an idea for a shot with that character that can be fun, I'm, I'm definitely going to kind of go to get it, whether it's Star Wars or even like there's lines and, and brands that I, I'm completely unfamiliar with. Like, um, what's that? Fortnite. I, I'm not even, I don't even know Fortnite, but there's a pink teddy bear and you got to have the pink teddy bear action figure if it has, <laughs> if, you, if you come across it. So we, um, you know, I'll buy figures even if I don't know their backstory, but if it's something that I can kind of bring in, especially if it's like a pink teddy bear or like a stormtrooper that is really kind of doesn't have a backstory and you can kind of create your own thing with it. And so that's kind of what I gravitate towards. Uh, types of figures, I think robots, I definitely, if there's a new robot out, I, I look look at it and really kind of go for it. So that's like Star Wars. Obviously, if there's a droid out, I got to get that droid mm -hmm. just because. But overall, I, I keep a, an open mind to the brands and anything really that I photograph. There are certain things that I kind of stay away from a little bit more. Um, just because of the quality issues, I, I've I've had so many problems with certain brands that or certain manufacturers that I am really hesitant to buy from them. But for the most part, it, it's more character driven for me. Yeah. How do you come up with ideas for some of your mashups, or do they just come to you when you're looking at other toys, or, or how do you come up with some of this stuff? It really is just real world examples. Just it it comes from everywhere. It could be from something that is an autocorrect on an iPhone, you're like, how did that spell that? Wait a minute, that would make a really cool figure. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, and then just kind of joking around with friends. It's like, what if Mr. T became an Ewok? And then you got Mr. T walk. And it's like, oh my God, I got, I got to make a Mr. T walk. <laughs> and so, you know, just really kind of fun, punny stuff that comes up and uh, really just looking for inspiration anywhere. I, I, I love that. And, and uh, puns are always a, a good place to start. At least it's, it's a a good place to get just a quick, funny idea. And if, and if you can build off of that, then great. Yeah, I, I'm a big pun fan myself. <laughs> what are some of your biggest artistic influences? You mentioned drawing, and the first thing I thought was um, like those uh, Rat Fink drawings from, from Ed Roth or something, just the kind of yeah. anthropomorphic kind of things that you've got going on. And um, what were some of your biggest influences? So there's a lot of different kind of areas that I kind of draw influence from. There's even like some people on Instagram that are character artists or they're uh, special effects artists, like they post some sculptures that are really super inspiring. And so like for sculpting, I look at, there's there's several on Instagram, I think just to name a few, Shell Sculpture Studio, like Jordu Shell is one that really kind of inspires me. Doug Stanant, I, I, I think I'm probably butchering that name, but he's another one that kind of comes to mind. But definitely like Ratfink, and I like that lowbrow kind of style, less refined, more sketchy, you know, a little bit of chaos in it and not really as refined as you would think. So 
a lot of gig posters. So if you look at like, at least for drawing, not really even like the ones that are really refined, like the screen printed ones, but more like the ones you see hanging on the, the, uh, the telephone posts for the bar down, to, down by the street, you <laughs> right. know, just, they look like you took a Sharpie and scratched it and then ran it through a Xerox 20 times. There's just something really neat and, and drawing to me that it draws me to that kind of sketchy feel and that very loose style. I am drawn to that sort of drawing and hmm. I'm drawn to that sort of drawing. <laughs> <laughs> so the, and really it's just, as I said, like any, anything will influence me. I go to a, a museum and I just, can veg out the whole day because I, I pick out things that I like from any really style. You know, there are certain styles that I really don't care for, but I, I get like Duchamp signing a urinal or, or Andy Warhol just kind of spitting out prints. You know, I, I get what they're trying to get, but it's just not inspiring, creatively inspiring to me. There's definitely more uh, stuff out there, but for the most part, I look at a piece of art and I, I'm always inspired by at least one little piece of it I can take away. Let's talk about the actual process that you go through of making toys. And I know that it probably changes depending on what you're working on and stuff like that. But what is the process once you finally do come up with a great idea for a toy? Um, what's next? There, Well, there's a couple things, I guess, that, that start out. Like, I always think like drawing is the basic foundation. You, it, it always helps to kind of just get a piece of paper and just start scratching out ideas and figuring out what you want. And there's even some customs or creations that I've done that started as a little sketch in my notepad as I'm working. You know, I just kind of doodle. And I'm like, oh, wait, that's a neat looking head. And so I doodle more to refine that sketch. Um, then after that, you kind of, I guess it depends on what you're working with. Like if you're starting from scratch, you kind of, as you said, just build out the design and just start sculpting and go at it. Uh, if you're customizing a figure, that could get a little bit more difficult. With your Lego background, you probably know that you need to search for the right parts. And so it's almost similar to that. It's like you, if you want to make a certain figure, you got to find a head that'll work. You got to find a body that'll work and you got to find a bunch of other little stuff that will work and kind of come together. And then once you have all your pieces, you can start kind of hacking it out, piecing it together and making sure it all fits. It's a really neat process. It's like the ultimate art form, really. It, it encompasses sculpting and even like down to engineering and, and weight and balance and it, it can get kind of complicated. <laughs> What's your history with that kind of stuff, like sculpting and, and the actual like workshopping things that you do? Were those skills that you already had or were those things you had to develop as you continued to make toys? They're stuff that really just develops. I took a sculpting class in college, but it really wasn't too much. Sculpting comes a little bit more natural to me than drawing. I think sculpting is a lot easier than drawing, hmm. for sure. And so it's just learning the medium and learning what to use. I, I think it, it break, you, you break it down into two parts, like what are the materials that you use? And then it's just muscle memory after that. So you, you learn the materials and then from there, it's just kind of learning how to create fur or learning how to sculpt for, or learning how to sculpt certain parts of the anatomy. So it's getting there for me. And I've already kind of, I know a really good amount of what to use and what not to use, what works and everything. What kind of, uh, what materials do you find yourself working with the most? Recently, it's been, you know, airbrushing. And so obviously acrylic paints, airbrushes, epoxies are really good. Recently, I've been working a lot just building scratch building figures. So just taking raw materials and building them. Hmm. You know, in the past couple of weeks, I've been working a lot with wire and uh, brass tubing. And I think there's even like some Revoltec joints. So they're jo joints from import figures that they sell separately. And so you can basically add articulation just by buying the joints online. Oh, and so wow. I'm kind of getting into a lot of the raw materials right now. 
and it's constantly changing and evolving. But right now, my my jam is brass tubing and wire. Hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I I like some of the wire stuff you've done. You've made some really cool, um, just like little like it, it was like the opening of your your videos. You've got like a really cool. Um, I don't even know how to really explain it. Maybe I'm sure you know exactly. When you're nodding, so I think you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. It's just you know a bent a bent wire. Really, you just bend a wire. It's right. That was the armature for a little Grim Reaper that I did. Like the Grim Reaper was probably about as long as your thumbnail. He's about that tall. Like when I put it up to my thumbnail, it was about a, just about the the wow. size of my thumbnail. And so that's how small that little piece of wire was. But yeah, the the wire armature. I found a way. I met up with a guy up in Portland when I was up there, uh, and he had worked for some of the stop motion animators. And so I take a lot from those guys and the art doll community. And so you, you find you kind of meld a couple things from there and you learn a couple things on how to articulate figures. And the wire was what I learned from some of the stop motion guys. There's certain ways that you can kind of connect and bend the wires where you don't even need epoxy or glue, but you can kind of attach the hips and attach the torso with just certain bends that you do with the wire and that's really kind of neat because you can create a complete figure with just wire and and a junk electronics and and so it's it's a rewarding process to take these raw materials what you would go to michael's and you buy wire for two bucks and you buy a used stereo at a swap meet for 50 cents and you put those two things together and you have this unique creation that no one else can match and it you can create your own world with it so that I think for me is what drives me towards these scratch builds the most. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's something that um, really puts a unique stamp on your photography, because as you said, you're photographing things that no one else has. Like I loved that little Grim Reaper you had and you put him in a, in a, in a Hot Wheels car. Is that right? Yeah. I scaled him down to about a Hot Wheels car. He had a little bit of uh, drilling and filling on the seat, but he was able to kind of sit in there and Unfortunately, after the Hot Wheel car was on there and I had painted it, like you could hardly see him. <laughs> All that hard work. <laughs> right. Uh, it was just, it was neat to see him outside of the car, really. It was just to be able to create something that small, but yet that recognizable was really kind of a an aha moment where it was like, wow, I can really do some neat stuff with this. Yeah. How hard is it working on, on that such a small, small scale? Do you have to have a bunch of magnifying glasses around or how, how do you do that? Because it's hard enough for me to mess with like Lego heads sometimes. <laughs> Oh, right. Yeah. And and my old eyes, they don't get any younger. <laughs> um, when I bought uh, the jeweler's glasses, they kind of flip up and flip down and they're uh, magnifying glasses. When I bought those, that was kind of like I, I had really resisted buying them because like, oh, I'm not that old. I'm still young. I, I don't need them. But even like the young kids, like 18 years old, you can still put those on and you see things that your human eye can't pick up. And so once you get those on, it's a lot easier to paint and work on that smaller scale for sure. And again, it's it's a lot of muscle memory. Like you'll you can't just sculpt right out of the box. Like you'll probably screw up a couple times. <laughs> like I think with that Grim Reaper, I actually did mess him up a couple times before I got one to actually work. But uh, you eventually it's just you're working on such a small scale that you just a little bit of movement to create the eye and you just learn that little bit of movement and you learn how to work with the medium. Yeah, that makes sense. The more you do it and the the more you learn. How long will you spend working on one particular new creation? Yeah, it depends on the the build for sure and how complicated it is. Uh, these little minifigures that we're doing for the meetup this year, I made the prototypes in a day. Like they weren't very difficult at all. Uh, it was just kind of a quick turnaround. 
like that little Grim Reaper in the Hot Wheels car. It took a little bit more time just because I I had never taken apart a Hot Wheel car before. I've never worked with a Hot Wheel car before. It was like something completely new with me. So there was a lot of time wasted in just learning how to take one apart and how to work with one. I think overall it took me about a month to do. Oh, wow. Um, if I were to do another one, I could probably just sit down and do it in maybe a day or two, uh, depending on how fast the epoxy dries because there's also that waiting time where you're working with something that is, it takes time to cure and so you can only work a little bit at a time with the reaper what i did was i i did the head and then i set it aside for the day because I, if i started adding the clothes i'm going to start messing up the head because it was still wet and malleable so i let the head dry and then i worked with the arms a little bit and then i set that aside and you're working it's so tedious sometimes you have to do that or else you're going to screw it up so yeah it, it depends on how complicated it is and how much time i personally have to devote you know working full-time it also you know after a long day's work you really don't want to sit down and sculpt sometimes so you know if i had the time to devote i could probably knock out a figure in a week or a, a day or two easily but uh, again it's how much time do i have to devote and how much time can i concentrate on this because there's times where stuff isn't working and you just got to walk away from it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know that feeling. There's that frustrating period where you're like, no, I can do this. And you push through and push through and push through and it's just not working. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to set it aside, go take a break, yeah. sleep on it, come back to it. And then it's, it's amazing sometimes how easy it can be the next day, you know, when you come back to something. Yeah. And it, especially when like you're painting and the colors aren't coming out the way you want, walk away. That's the safest thing to do because you keep adding onto it and it's just going to get muddy. <laughs> Yeah, I bet I, I've I've not done much painting or anything myself, or even much customizing. There was a um, this week I I did a shot for the Batman 80th anniversary. I put this beard on Batman, and I needed to cut the cowl, so I like got a little X-Acto knife and cut the cowl off. And I was like, "Is this how it starts? You start doing one little <laughs> tiny thing, and it's just gonna snowball into customizing toys and cutting heads off of things and and mixing and matching." Yeah, it really is. Like, that's how you get the bug. Uh, there's some people, I guess, that are probably more susceptible to it, but that's usually how it happens is like something breaks and you fix it and you're like, oh, wow, that, that was kind of cool. Let's wait for something else to break or, you know. Or go break something yourself. Yeah, exactly. I've done that. I'm guilty. Like buying a figure, taking it out of the package and breaking it instantly <laughs> just just to have the pieces. I just want it for its body. Yeah, I was going to ask like how often you'll just buy toys just for one specific piece or one specific accessory or, or a, a body that you want to put a head onto or something like that. Are you always kind of scouting around for things that could be turned into creations or when you go toy hunting, are you looking for specifics? There are times that I do that. Um, there are times where I like I, I see a figure and I'm like, oh, man, that would make a really neat head. And with the ability to cast, I can kind of duplicate and reduplicate that. So obviously, depending on the price, I'm not going to spend $100 and then go kind of kit bash it and break it. But, you know, for these five, $10 figures, I might buy it just for an accessory to cast and, you know, keep the rest for later because it's always nice to have a kind of a stockpile of bodies <laughs> to work from. <laughs> and, you know, because you never know when you need a good boot or a, a hands. I think with the scratch building, I've kind of started dipping back into my broken fodder bin. It's just so much easier to grab a hand or uh, a boot when you need it mm -hmm. instead of having to try and sculpt your own. And so there's definitely elements that I can use from figures and it helps justify the cost when I buy it just to break it. 
I want to switch gears and talk about your photography a little bit too, because I think it might be easy to look at your work and, and focus on the toys because your custom creations are so cool, but you're also just an amazing photographer as well. How did you start getting into photography and developing that skill? So photography, I think it started as I'd mentioned with film. It was like an old rebel film camera, um, the one with Andre Agassi. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it started with film. And then I had a friend who had a digital uh, Canon 20D. She let me borrow it. And it kind of helped justify the cost. Because uh, at the time, again, it was like it was a, a substantial buy-in for some of these cameras. The shots that she was getting were, were just mind-blowing. Like with she had a 60 millimeter macro lens. Hmm. And so she's taking pictures of like water drops. And you see the, the American flag through the water drop. And I'm like, wow. So that draw to you know be able to kind of spray and pray so to speak and get a bunch of shots then pick out the best one without having to buy film develop film scan film all that stuff that was kind of a draw so i got into the 20d from there and i still have that camera actually i just converted it to infrared and that was kind of my first big digital slr and i i kind of built my equipment up by just doing odd jobs with the camera. So my hobby kind of paid for itself. And my wife's stepbrother had been playing baseball. So I'd just go out to his baseball games and I'd just take pictures as she's visiting with her mom. And then uh, at the end of the year, I'd kind of just burn them onto a CD and hand them out to the families. And the families would kind of pay me some money for taking the pictures. And then I'd just turn that right into a new lens or turn that into a new flash or an extended battery pack or something. So that's how I kind of built up my repertoire of uh, learning the camera and just kind of getting into it. And then I didn't really start understanding exposure and focus and how to really kind of manipulate and what understand the camera on like a really deep level until I took a class. My second run at college, when I was going back for my computer degree, I took a film camera class. And so I went from film to digital back to film. And that back to film was a really good thing, at least for my understanding of photography, because you kind of go back and really focus on, okay, this is how you set an aperture. This is how your camera's reading that aperture. How do you adjust the shutter speed and compensate for the light and compensate for the aperture? So doing that math, and that was one thing that was kind of, it was great to get back into film. It slows you down and forces you to think about your shot, not only composure, but just your settings and manually set those. And then from that film class, I actually did do like my own prints. So we're doing like emulsion in the dark room and stuff like that. And that was another experience where you learn so much more about photography and post-processing even uh, just by doing the emulsion print. I took a lot of that knowledge into Photoshop because there's, you're doing the same things at least, at least for my post-processing technique. I'm not really one to throw a bunch of lighting effects and uh, lens flares and stuff like that. It's a very kind of a more natural shooting and so my post-processing does mimic that quite a bit. Like I do some color adjustments and some curves layers, but, you know, knowing how to develop the film and then taking another class where I took the digital part of that, where it's showing you the digital darkroom stuff that kind of solidified my knowledge of cameras. And really, I came out of those two classes just so much of better of a photographer. And I, I was fortunate enough to study under a really talented photographer that was just brilliant. He had a great eye, great teaching, and I couldn't have asked for a better teacher to kind of pass that knowledge on to me. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how once you know 
like you said, the, the aperture and the exposure and, and how to manipulate that stuff and really know your camera. Isn't it amazing just how much it transforms your photography? Uh, I didn't learn all that stuff till last year and I, my photography has just totally evolved since then and I feel so much more confident and less frustrated and I'm definitely not shooting as many exposures and stuff trying to get a shot, you know. It's, it's amazing how much that technical knowledge really does influence and, and enhance your photography. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the most scientific of any art form, really. It's when you when you break it down, it's like very scientific and mathematical, at least the the front end of the photography taking the picture. I think the creativity is that side comes in when you're doing the post processing. And obviously, when you're toy photography, it comes in when you're setting the shot up. Yeah, absolutely. So then once you, you know, learned more about photography and got into the digital cameras and all that kind of stuff, when did you start photographing toys? And and how did that uh, spiral? Uh, Instagram, the very early days, um, I was again in college, I had, you know, finished my digital stuff and I don't even think like at the time I got an Instagram, I don't think you could upload a photo to Instagram. You'd have to use their camera. And I think that was like really early on and being a photography nut, Instagram was kind of one of the bigger photography apps. So I downloaded it to check it out and didn't use it too much until I, I, there was like that picture of Spider-Man. I can remember it. Like I posted the picture of Spider-Man and all of a sudden people started liking it. And I'm like, that's where I kind of got sucked into the community was very early on. And you know, it's changed quite a bit, but that early stages of the community where it was just kind of a niche group of photographers that were together. That was kind of a, a special time, at least for me in toy photography. I don't think if I found toy photography today, I don't know if I would have gotten sucked in as much as I got sucked in back when it was just kind of a smaller group. Yeah, I, I could understand that. I got started, uh, how long have I been doing it now? Almost six years. So six years ago, the f- it was still a pretty small community. And, and I remember you know, like I said, following people like Shelly and, and it was really easy to just kind of input yourself in the community and start talking to people and get involved. And, and, um, how did you start discovering some of those people? Cause you have become such good friends with people like Shelly and, and Layla and Cindy, and, and you've been to all of these toy photo safaris, which we're going to talk about, but how did you, you know, start finding these people and developing these friendships? Yeah, I think the, the Pacific Northwest folks, uh, a lot of it was from, Shelly's first blog, The Stuck in Plastic. So I kind of got in, I can't remember who I found first. It might have been John Dinosaurs hmm. or Shelly. One of those two, I think, got me into that kind of group and sucked me in that way. And so that's kind of where it did begin. I'm trying to think of any others. Like there was a lot of other little toy community accounts. Like I met Wiki, I think, through account she was modding, which was Toy Humor. You know, the Brick Central days, I think that might have been where I actually, now that I think about it, I think that was where I, I kind of fell into Shelly's group was through the Brick Central Instagram. Especially because that was uh, such a big, important part of the toy photo community and, and still is, but, you know, was especially in the beginning and, and gathering all these people together and, and grouping mm-hmm. us together and mm-hmm. creating a community, you know. Let's uh, let's talk about toy safaris. You've been to all of them, right? The, the the annual toy safaris we do, is that right? Since Vegas? Yeah, I think I've been to every one of them. I started in Vegas with everyone, and I've I've hit all of them. Yeah. So what you know, what drove you to Vegas, and then uh, what keeps you coming back? The well, obviously the the whole idea of shooting in a group is what kind of drove me to Vegas originally, because uh, I you know being in art in college, like I, I missed those times where you go into class and everybody's just drawing and there's a certain kind of 
I don't know, you feed off of each other's creative energy mm-hmm. in, in ways that you don't normally do in when you're shooting with just one or two people. And so the 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 desire and that kind of drive to get that creative vibe in that group and just feeding off that energy was the reason that got us to Vegas, I think. And it, it didn't disappoint for sure. Like it was a small group, but it definitely was a very fun group to be around. And that experience, I think, just set the course for all the others where it's like they're really hard to pass up. It's hard to justify not going to any of these just, you know, after that first one. Yeah, there's something about being, you know, as you said, surrounded by all these other creative people and meeting people in person that you've only met online, you know, and you live in uh, the Bay Area. Is that right? Close to the Bay Area, just a little bit inland uh, in Sacramento. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, all these, you know, people that you had met in, especially in like the Pacific Northwest, you know, um, that you hadn't met in person yet. I, I'm sure that was a, a pretty cool experience. Yeah. It was my first experience kind of meeting someone. Well, not my first experience, but like first experience being part of a group that met online. You know, I'm from that old age where you don't meet anyone that you meet on the internet and you don't get in cars with people. And now <laughs> it's like, as they say, we're summoning, you know, cars on the internet to get in their car. And walk. But yeah, it was, it was nerve wracking to begin with, but you know, instantly, you know, once you meet them, the group, it, the nerves just fade away because it, it all just, we all just geek out on toys and start talking photography and toys and time just passes. It's mm-hmm. the fastest couple of days that you'll ever experience. Yeah. And I remember meeting you briefly at the Seattle one. Uh, I don't think we, we like shot together or talked very much or anything, but I do remember kicking myself for not bringing cash. Cause you, you had all these customs that you had made and, and were kind of selling it to the safari, you know, and I, I mm-hmm. really wish I'd gotten some of those, but yeah, I, re- I remember you at those and your wife is into toy photography too. And, and super supportive of you as well. Right. Yeah, that was a big mistake because there's no <laughs> there's no logical reasoning now. It's like I show her a picture of a toy and she's like, oh, my God, we got to have that. There's no one to talk me down. It's like we both <laughs> just dive into it. Right. Yeah, that's kind of a fun thing that we do together, too, is just we, we both started out with photography, both love photography. And that was kind of uh, a common ground that we had that we met with. And it transitioned into Instagram. Like I, I got on Instagram and I she wasn't really a believer until I started showing her pictures of what was being done. And she kind of got sucked in from there. How, how does she feel about you doing the custom creations and stuff like that? You know, I know that she's super supportive of, of you and everything, but how does she feel about, you know, you spend so much time in the workshop working on these things? My God, she's more than supportive. Like she's the reason almost that I do it sometimes. Like she's more, I don't know the correct word, but like almost pushing me towards it. Like more, not even just tolerating it, but inspiring me and, and pushing me to do more. Like whenever I want to buy something, she's always the first one to just go buy it kind of a thing. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's, she's, she's, I wouldn't be doing it without her for sure. Like, in fact, even from that day one, like I, I probably would not have cut the head off that monkey if it was not for my wife, <laughs> take that quote out of context. <laughs> but um, yeah, cause I showed her the same thing and we kind of both kind of dove into it together just to kind of deconstruct how we were able to even do that. But she's, she's definitely kind of my test subject as well. Like I bring her a paint scheme and it's like, what do you think of this? And she's pretty honest where she's, I don't really like it or yeah, that's great. And so it's kind of a, a nice to have that as well as that, that, non-objective where she's not really afraid to kind of shoot me down second opinion 
Yeah, that's that's amazing that you have her to support you and, and encourage you. And it'd be fun to get her on the podcast in the future, too, and talk about more of uh, you guys doing this together. Because I think, you know, there aren't a ton of couples in the toy photo community, at least that I've noticed. So it's it's awesome that you guys are doing this together. And, and uh, I'd love to chat with both of you. I think that would be cool. That'd be fun, yeah. For these toy photo safaris, at least for the last couple, you've been making custom Lego minifigures for each one. Uh, can you talk about that process? Like, where did that idea come from, and and how did you start doing that? Yeah, I've been making. There's been a minifigure that I've made for every toy photo meetup. I think we're on what is it number six or number five? Uh, good question. Five. We count down. So Las <laughs> Vegas, there was the Jack Skellington figure. And so that was the first figure that I sculpted the head for, and I absolutely hate it, but everybody loves it. And I don't think I'll ever want to look at it again. Like I won't make it again. Don't ask. It's not happening. But <laughs> no, it was a it was a fun figure, and it was very early on, and it was kind of just in passing. It's like, hey, I just made this Jack Skeleton. You want me to make it for everyone? And Shelly was Shelly was Shelly. She was super free, super supportive, and creative, and always willing to kind of push me to that next level and she jumped on it and we you know we started with that one and that kind of got the ball rolling and thinking so from vegas we went to uh, i think seattle was next yes yeah 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 so it was vegas and then seattle so seattle i already kind of had another figure that i was doing it was the little spray paint cap head and those i saw from another photographer i can't remember his name smoking smoking black i think i can't remember exactly who I originally saw that, but he took a normal spray paint cap and put it on a Lego. And I kind of instant messaged him and asked him if he would mind if I took that idea. And he was completely supportive. And so I made a cast, a resin cast of that. And uh, I think that was what we did for that Seattle meetup. And those were kind of, to this day, like I I think for me, it was one of my more favorite uh, customs just because it was just quirky and weird, yet somehow it kind of almost fit in the Lego universe. But, you know, you could still kind of have fun with a little street mm -hmm. photography. And the, those guys really do well with like an urban setting. And so from the Seattle, we went to San Francisco, which was uh, that was my eyeball phase. So we made those little eyeballs. Uh, those were kind of fun. Shelly picked out the capes for those guys. And from San Francisco, obviously, was last year the Oregon Toy Photo Safari, which was, I think that little TV head was my most well-received custom to date so far. Yeah, I, I still see photos of that, the TV head. People love those. And I've, I've got a couple of them. They're awesome. I, I try to keep them kind of exclusive to these meetups. Like, I don't like to make them because you come to the meetup, it's kind of a, a special thing that you can get. But those TV heads were a game changer. Like I had so many people asking me, where can I get one? How can I get one? Give me one, sell me one. And I just finally gave in. So uh, we've got those guys everywhere from, I think Italy to Spain, to Europe, to Australia. They're, they're on every continent in this world. And so they're infesting the world. And I, I, I always try to kind of one up myself, but last year it was like, I, I don't think I can. I think I, I hit that crest where those TV <laughs> heads were just too perfect. And it was just a simple, uh, like 25 cent toy that I found at a swap meet. You know, you never expect to find this stuff, but I found it at a swap meet and I took a chance on it. I cut its head off, cast it and fit it on a Lego. And it was just one of the better things that I've, I've seen on a Lego to date. This year it was kind of, uh, a little bit similar where I was at a hardware store of all places. And I saw a little, uh, there's socket extensions and the socket extensions. I 
you could you could see a little eyeball in them. So I cast it, and you paint it a certain way, and you can. They became like this little copper cyclops Frankenstein sort of monster thing. So hopefully they were uh, they'll they'll meet the expectations. Even though I've set like these high expectations with the <laughs> with the TV figure, I think that these will be kind of really fun this year as well. Yeah, I love these new ones. You sent me a couple uh, ahead of time just so I could see them and talk to you about them. Yeah, I love the little, they're, yeah, just like little Cyclops droids. And you've got little wires um, coming off the top that look like little antennas. And then you've got these great tiny, tiny little nails coming out the sides of the necks, too, that look like little, like you said, Frankensteins. They're just, they're so cool. And those little accents were kind of afterthoughts. Uh, mm. You know, I, I cast it and I... I painted it up and it just, it, it looked cool, but it looked like it needed something else. And so I had um, just some random electronic parts like I normally kind of store. <laughs> uh, you know, I build up certain parts. And so I had a, these little resistors that I kind of folded up and stuck on their heads and the bolts coming out of the heads, the little tiny screws. Uh, it came together perfect, I think. Yeah, I would agree. Mass producing these, or at least making a bunch of them for, for people coming to a toy photo safari, how is that? I know that you create casts and molds and stuff, but you have to paint each one and screw in all the little wires and bolts and stuff. How is it working on a bunch of them at one time? Yeah, it's a one-man show over here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like I work a full-time job, and then I kind of get off, and I work with these little guys. Uh, the painting isn't too bad, but whenever I kind of think of these minifigures, I always got to kind of factor in. I'm going to be making, you know, close to 100 of these to go over to the European meetup, the Australian meetup, the U.S. meetup. So there's going to be a lot of these that are going to be need to be made. And I don't want the quality to be kind of subpar and I don't want the paint to chip off and I don't want things to break off. So I always kind of keep that design in the mind. And knowing that I have to kind of mass produce these, it kind of helps keep the design a certain way. Mm. Um, and with this year, it there were a couple that I kind of toyed around with, but I couldn't get the casting right. And they were kind of, uh, I don't know if you've seen the little koala head that Tony had given out to a couple people, Mick Fury. Yeah. I, I I'm one of the lucky recipients of one of those. I've got one myself. Cool. Yeah. The one I have is a, a little secret agent. Yeah. One, so it was like a little James Bond looking Mick Fury. It's so cool. That was one of my favorite ones, yeah. And I kept that head without the eye patch. And so that I was thinking about just doing kind of little koala heads. And, you know, it's that little koala head actually scales really well with Lego, but hmm. the ears were kind of difficult to get the cast right. And I knew that if I was going to mass produce these on, on like a huge level, I would need to get the cast to come out like almost perfect, like very little refining, if any. And I just couldn't get that to work, so I opted to kind of scrap that idea. But that was definitely one that was in the in the thought process. Another one that almost came out, but I didn't have the materials to do it. Uh, they're just kind of showing up as the light bulb head. I don't know if you've seen Ryan Wolf. Uh, he kind of had one and had an idea, and uh, I sent him a light bulb head. I just now got the equipment to do it, and those are looking really strong. So I'm going to bring them to this year's meetup, and we'll talk with Shelly, but maybe those might be uh, in the near future's uh, possible meetup figure too. Yeah, those are really cool because they're kind of see-through too. So is that difficult working with like what kind of material and stuff or is that? Yeah, the so casting in that translucent resin opens up a whole new issue and, and, and stuff that you have to work through. And buying into the equipment to do that is 
a little bit expensive and it's a lot of bit dangerous. <laughs> you you <laughs> add like an element of danger. Like it, with these white resins, you know, you've got the respiratory stuff that you're working with. But in order to cast these clear resins, you have to pressurize the cast as it's curing. And so you're you're pumping in like 20 to well, more than 20, probably about 40 to 50 PSI into kind of a little tiny pot that's airtight in your garage. And so if that pot does have a structure failure, it's going to blow and it's going to blow because oh, it's wow. just so much pressure in this little chamber. And what that does is it kind of pumps a lot of air and pressure into the chamber and it forces the bubbles that you get from mixing the resin. It forces those bubbles to expand and pop. And so that's really what you're doing is you're, you're just introducing just so much pressure that the bubbles kind of just get disseminated to the point where you come out with this clear resin casting with very minimal bubbling. And so buying into that, it's like you're buying a generator, you're buying an air pump, you're buying a, two different types of pots. And so there's a lot of equipment. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to kind of get into that, but I slowly kind of bought into it. And so I'm I'm to that point where I can kind of mass produce these and the Lego heads would the light bulbs would be feasible for definitely a meetup and definitely kind of mass production. They're pretty easy once you get the equipment to do it, hmm. but it's just a matter of buying that equipment. Yeah. And, and learning how to do it safely. You know, you don't want to lose a limbs or, or bodily harm or something to, to make little Lego heads. <laughs> it's definitely nerve wracking. The first couple of times that you pump that thing and, and, and just let it sit, you know, you, you know that there's 40 PSI in there. And if that thing fails, it's going to go. <laughs> and I, I've read like blog posts online as I was kind of figuring out what equipment I need. You, you see these images of people with these pot lids that flew across their garage and dented their car. And like, it's just so much damage to these things. It's, it almost gets you out of it right away. But I, you know, I worked through it and we, we kind of, I'm I'm getting a little bit safer with it. I never want to get to the point where I'm comfortable. <laughs> like a little <laughs> bit of fear is good sometimes. What is it like for you to see other people photograph the toys that you make? Creating your own customs for a while, you know, and photographing them yourself is cool, but to to make these, you know, mass produced uh, little Lego heads and give them out to photographers all over the world. What's it like, you know, getting on Instagram and seeing those TV heads every day? <laughs> that I think is my favorite part of the whole process. Like when I'm when I'm done mass producing these things, I don't want to see them. I've looked at them so much. Like I'm tired of them. Get me out of them. I don't want to <laughs> photograph them, but I love seeing them come through my feed just because it's, it's neat to see where people take them. Like I, I, I've seen things done with these little guys and like little sidekicks that they've been given that I never even conceived of. So it's neat to see someone take my idea and just make it their own and run with it and create their own little world. And, these characters aren't really characters that you know of. So you're forced to create their own backstory. You're forced to kind of create a little story for them. And even if you don't do a lot of writing, like the the settings that you put them in, and that was the first thing that they wanted to do is they want to name these guys and make them their own. So that's kind of rewarding that it's inspiring creativity. It's like my creativity is inspiring someone else's creativity. It's kind of really, really neat to see. You teased earlier on in the show that you're, you might get started into making, like actual doing your own toy making, not just custom stuff. But uh, can you talk about that a little bit or tease what you're kind of hoping for? Well, I think it all started with DesignerCon last November. I, I went to that and I saw what is possible to do, like with these just one guy in a garage. And you see these amazing pieces that people are doing. Um, and so that was 
a moment where it kind of clicked for me. It's like, okay, I could theoretically make anything I wanted to. And so that's one thing that's kicking off the scratch build process is learning how to build these things and learning how to, you know, articulate them in the right places and, and where that weight distribution needs to be and boosting up my sculpting game. So I think there's a lot of different things that I have ideas for. A lot of them are not really something that you would recognize, but like these TV heads where it's something that you can get and just take and make your own and create your own little world with it. So uh, obviously a lot more robotic. Like I like discarded electronics and my dad works for a company that does security cameras. And so he is constantly getting e-waste of these really great little cameras that are broken hmm. that he just kind of scraps and they end up going to like this e-waste. Well, he, he knows kind of what I look for now. And so he's starting to bring me these really cool cameras with these amazing kind of intricate lenses and their lenses aren't that big. Like they're the, they're probably the scale of like a six inch action figure. So, you know, being able to, scratch build a robot body and throw an actual lens on it is something that is intriguing to me. And so I'm, I'm chasing that dream right now. Hmm. Um, and then uh, knowing how to articulate, I'm also got a couple other ideas, like little insects that I could make with resin. And then like I did with the robot head, you have the resin robot head with the wire antennas. And so integrating that with like little insects where I sculpt an insect body and I kind of throw these little wire antennas out and kind of make this cyber insects sort of things uh you know definitely those are where my mind is going right now i think is um light bulbs electronics weird funky odd fun to shoot awesome yeah and it, it seems to fit your style really well and it sounds like a really exciting um you know journey that you're about to start on and i and i wish you the best uh, that sounds awesome and i can't wait to someday buy all of the cool robot toys that you make <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, we'll have to get on uh, and talk about a couple of those when yeah. I finally am able to make one. For people just getting started in making their own toys or customizing toys or kit bashing or anything like that, do you have advice for people? I think Nike had it right. Just do it. <laughs> like, that's what you got to do. And, you know, I think you can't really have uh, these grand dreams of creating the most amazing sideshow-esque quality figure right off the bat. Like start small and start with projects that you know you can complete. And that's kind of where I am. My sculpting ability, I can't sculpt realism. I know it. I know my limitations right now. It's like I'm not I'm not at that point yet. But I take on little projects that help me get to that realism. Mm. And so I'm I'm slowly kind of building my sculpting up. Um, and even though I kind of fail in certain ways and I don't like how some things come out, it ends up being a finished piece that I don't mind shooting. Like the robot insects. They exist in a world that doesn't exist yet. So no one can tell me this insect doesn't exist or it doesn't look like a fly because that insect doesn't exist. Mm. So that's kind of some of the projects that I gravitate towards where I can try sculpting it a likeness. And even if I fail, I still kind of succeed because I've got this thing that doesn't exist, but it's just something that wasn't really my vision. So, you know, working with things on small scale and building it up um like with my very early sculpting was with you know my first custom that monkey that i was talking about just sculpting a little fur on the hands even though it doesn't look the best you know eventually i got really good at sculpting fur because i did it over and over and over so now i can sculpt fur so when i scale up to a bigger 
monkey or a bigger animal that I want to sculpt, I know how to sculpt fur. Mm. So piece it out and learn little things as you go. And I think you're going to be a lot more rewarding than starting this grand project failing and never wanting to see it again. Yeah, like you kind of mentioned earlier, you got to learn that muscle memory and, and, and all that stuff first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And then uh, where can people find your work online? The main place is Instagram at crash override crash K R A S H underscore override. And then from there, you've also got a link in my YouTube. Uh, and then you can kind of go there. I'm slowly starting to build that up and film as I go. I don't film everything, but when I know that there's a figure or a process that is going to come out, I try to film it and then kind of piece together a little video at the end. So um, it's kind of a great way to kind of learn and see how to do these things as well. Yeah, I was I was watching some of those just in preparation for this, and uh, it really is making me want to start doing some of this stuff myself. So uh, thank you for doing those, and I'm excited to see that channel grow for sure. Awesome. Thanks. And thank you for coming back onto the show. This was a fun conversation. I can't believe we're, we're already like an hour into this. I feel like we could keep talking about toys, toys all day. We'll definitely have to bring you back again for another time. <laughs> Most definitely. Yeah. We'll do a part two anytime you need. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. And um, good luck at the, the upcoming meetup. And I can't wait to see all of the amazing uh, toy photos that people take with your new robot heads. And I'm going to go start shooting some of these myself as well. Great. Sounds good. Thank you so much for listening. You can find new episodes of this podcast and daily articles on creativity and toy photography on our website, toyphotographers.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also ask that you please leave us a five-star review. That'll help spread the word about the show and help us get noticed. You can find us on Facebook at Toy Photographers and on Instagram at underscore toy photographers underscore. Music for this week's episode is courtesy of freemusicarchive.org. And finally, you can reach out to us with comments, concerns, recommendations, etc. at toyphotographypod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you guys next week.